Excellent. It is a real privilege and honor to be here at the chapel, and thank you so much, Pastor and Mrs. Miller, for inviting me. I'm really, really thrilled to, to speak to you today about my book, uh, God and Churchill, which is, sorry, I'm just turning my phone on so that I don't overspeak. I tend to talk for a long time, and so I don't want to keep you here for, for longer than the five hours I've been allotted. <laughs> it was five hours, or was it six? <laughs> um, it's a, it, as I say, it is a real privilege to, to be invited into any church to talk about my book, God and Churchill. Although the, the book bears my name, I do not credit myself with it. I actually credit God completely with it. The story is fairly long, and so I'm, it's, um, I'm not going to go into, into the depth of it. But at the time when God gave me this book to write and gave me the evidence for it, I was as far away from God as could possibly be. I didn't want a relationship with God. I had had one, and I had rejected him, and I hated him. I didn't want to know who he was. And so I, you know, I, I was just looking for a book, something that had never been spoken about my great-grandfather before, because those of you who know Winston Churchill know that absolutely everything in his life has been written about and written about, and there's an 8,000-page biography with an accompanying 23,000 pages of documents to support his life, and that doesn't include the 800,000 documents that are dotted around the UK and, and everything which also cover his life. So there was an awful lot of, that had been written about Winston Churchill and there was very, very little um, for, to choose from. And I got really angry with God and I said, Lord, come on, tell me, what is the one aspect of my great-grandfather's life that has never been discussed? And I really didn't expect an answer. And a couple of minutes later, I suddenly found myself drawn to a book that Churchill had written in the 1930s called My Early Life. And I was thumbing through this book and every single page I turned to randomly, it indicated to me that Churchill had a faith in God. And I thought, great, this is the book that I'm going to write. I then felt God saying, this is the book, but not now. And I'm an impatient person, so is my great-grandfather. And so... When God said, not now, you know, I, I, I was a starving public speaker, and I said to him, look, Lord, you may not be ready for this, but I am, okay? And so if you don't mind, I'm going to run with this, and you can catch me up when you're ready. Kind of doesn't work that way. It's only the arrogant who actually believe that it works that way. So, so anyway, so, so God didn't really have an, a response to that. But I can tell you that every single book that I looked into I could not find any supporting evidence to support my thesis. I couldn't even find the original evidence that I had turned to on that day. And so it was clear to me that God was blocking my path to be able to write this book at this moment of time. Then God decided in 20, in, uh, uh, this was in 2010, and then in 2014, uh, when the book started to be written, God told me that this is the time you're going to write it, but you're going to need a co-author. And I thought, no, 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 I don't need a co-author. No, 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 no. I want my name at the top of the book. You know, I am Jonathan Sands, great-grandson of Winston Churchill, and don't you forget it. <laughs> you know, and, and you, know, God, you know, God has nothing to do with this or anything. You know, it's, it, it's all me. I do not need a co-author. And God said to me, you need a co-author. And so I met with this pastor who happened, to, who I met through a mutual friend. And he was a really nice chap, really loved Winston Churchill. He's got 30 years theological experience behind him. And it dawned on me from, I mean, I did actually pray, having said that, you know, I, I sort of played the Christian card as if I was a Christian and really cared about God because he was a pastor and I needed to impress him. Um, I then actually found myself actually praying and saying, Lord, if this really is what you want, then fine, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. No problem at all. The moment that I gave in and I asked Wallace, I said to Wallace that I really believe that God is indicating that we should be writing this together. I went home. Every single book that I picked up to, random pages, Every single one indicated that God, that Churchill had a faith in God. But what I didn't count on was that God had influenced Churchill's life and had influenced us all during the Second World War. 
This was something that I really hadn't counted on. There wasn't enough to write a book on Churchill's faith in God. But there was certainly enough to write a book on God's faith in Churchill and God's appointment of Winston Churchill, which in and of itself was a miracle, which I shall tell you about today. Let me start by saying the purpose of God and Churchill was not to prove the existence of God. This is a question that we are not going to formally be able to answer until the very last day that this world exists. And when Jesus comes back, you and I are going to be standing there and we're going to be thrilled. But there is going to be a group of people around us who are going to look absolutely gobsmacked and they're going to say, what? You were right? Yes, we were right. It is true. Winston Churchill will not be one of those people who is caught by surprise. He will not be one of those people who looks on Jesus and says, who are you? He knew who, who God was. He knew who God was. He knew who Jesus was. So having reviewed the evidence that my co-author Wallace Henley and I put together and found and God provided us with, I felt that there were three major areas that we needed to focus on with God and Churchill. The first was to disprove the erroneous belief that my great-grandfather was either an agnostic or an atheist. It has become popular since his death in 1965 to claim that Winston Churchill was either an agnostic or an atheist. It is laziness on the part of historians because the evidence was all there to prove that Churchill actually did have a very real faith in God. But nobody wanted to tackle the issue. And frankly, when you're writing a book like God and Churchill, <laughs> it takes a lot of courage to actually do that. And God was the one who really gave me the courage because I didn't realize it took a lot of courage until the day that it actually came out. And I realized the awesomeness of what God had given me. So the first point was to disprove the erroneous belief that Churchill was either an agnostic or an atheist. He wasn't. He was a card-carrying Christian. Secondly, it was to use the already well-researched and undisputed historical evidence surrounding Churchill's life and times to prove that Churchill's life would not have been possible unless the God that he professed to believe in really did intervene in his life and really did help him as he maintained. Having proven both of those points, I felt the third point that we needed to look at was hope. It was offering hope to this world. It is a common idea of atheists and agnostics and people are, people are like to say that God is dead. God exist, uh, existed so long ago. You know, Jesus was 2,000 years ago. It's irrelevant now. The book, God and Churchill, provides evidence to prove that God worked in Winston Churchill's life. It proves that God worked with us and for us during the Second World War, that things would not have been possible without him. And that being the case, if the two first points are proven, both Churchill's faith in God and indeed God's faith in Churchill, then it means that God worked in Winston Churchill's life as close as 70 years ago. And he worked for, worked for us during the Second World War. If that is true, think what it means. Today, it means that God could be working in our lives and in our world today. This recent election that you've just seen, it's caused an awful lot of problems, an awful lot of divisions. You've got people who are on Trump's side. You've got people who are on Clinton's side. You've got people who are in the in-between. And it's divided people. This should not happen. Politics should not divide people. You should be able to have a conversation with your neighbor without offending them, without them being offended. You should have the right to believe whatever you want to believe. Okay? Now, I digress slightly. The reason I'm saying this is it doesn't matter who is in the White House. It doesn't matter who is in number 10 Downing Street. It doesn't matter who is controlling the Middle East and who controls Russia. It makes no difference whatsoever. God has his finger on the pulse. He is the one who decides the end of the world is today. God will not withdraw his blessing of America until the day that America withdraws its support of Israel. As evidence shows. Okay, God loves this country. If you believe, if you disbelieve that, 
If you believe the tripe that America is not great, America needs to be made great again, then what I challenge you to do today is I challenge you to look back 250-odd years to an infamous year, 1776. Yes, the year that I don't really talk about. Very painful to me when you guys decided to betray us British and move away. Our mad King George was most upset by that. And we are coming back. We are returning. You know, regularly we find jobs around this country when we are returning. So one day, we, one day you will come back to us. You will be a colony again. Yes. <laughs> Look at what America has achieved since 1776. You have achieved more than the British Empire and the Roman Empire combined. If God was not looking after you, if God was not blessing this amazing nation, do you really think you could have achieved all of that in such a short space of time? And I'll tell you, if you hadn't achieved it in this short space of time, if you hadn't walked away from, the, from Britain in 1776, then in 1941, when you joined us in the war, when we were desperately fighting on our own, you wouldn't have been able to join us because you would have still been a British colony, still under the empire, and you wouldn't have had an army. It would have been exactly like us. But because some brave men got together and brave wives kicked them into touch to make sure that they got together, men, don't kid yourself. We, we are not the successful heroes in this. Okay, behind every successful man is a wonderful, patient woman. Okay? But you could say equally the other way around, behind every successful woman is also a patient man. Not necessarily as wise, but if w I am convinced that if women were left to rule the world, we would never have a war again, we'd never have any problems. It's, it, it, you know, I can honestly tell you that for myself, if, without my wife Sarah, I would not be here today. For Winston Churchill, his wife Clementine, my great-grandmother, he said, I could not have achieved anything without her. Do not kid yourselves, men. We may stand up as the picture of the hero, but the hero is the one you don't see. The hero behind us is the person who truly deserves that accolade. And that's why Churchill gave those accolades. So anyway, so I'm sorry, I, I have digressed slightly into this, but... This offers hope. This work offers hope. And this was why I don't claim this book to be mine. This is why I claim it to be God's. Because it is God's testimony. It is God's evidence. I am here. I love you. You are my children. It is not too late. Call on me. I challenge you to call on him. Ask him. What I didn't count on when I started writing this book was the closer that I got to the evidence of Churchill's belief in God and God's faith in Churchill, the closer I myself would get in my walk to God. As I said before, I didn't want anything to do with God. I just wanted a book. That's all I wanted. I don't want a relationship with God. It comes with strings attached as a problem. No, 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 no. No, I'm I just want a book. Okay? But as with the timing, as with the co-author, that wasn't God's plan. And he didn't let me in on that plan. And actually, he didn't let me in on that plan at all. I just suddenly found myself falling in love with God. It was the most incredible thing. If that's the power that God had in my life to change my life, I'm amazed that he can change everyone's life. Because I really was an arrogant, self-centered person who you really would have hated. You'd never have wanted me to come to your church and speak. So anyway, to effectively contradict the many well-respected and um, historians who had written my great-grandfather off as an agnostic or an atheist, I felt we first had to look at what Winston Churchill himself had to say on the matter. I am not a pillar of the church, but a buttress, he once remarked. Now, it is a common misconception that in order to be a person of faith, you have to become dogmatic, or you have to regularly attend some form of religious service. Interestingly enough, the Bible makes no reference to either. They shall be known by their fruits is how a person of faith is recognized. Winston Churchill once described the Sermon on the Mount as the last 
word in ethics. Now, he took it further. And he said, the more closely we follow the Sermon on the Mount, the more likely we are to achieve our objectives, to succeed in our endeavors. Now, to say that the Sermon on the Mount was the last word in ethics, really, that's no great feat. I mean, you know, we all know the story of the Sermon on the Mount. And for those that don't know the story of the Sermon on the Mount, you can read it. It's a really interesting, it's a really interesting read. But at no point... Does Jesus say, if you follow this, you're going to be successful? You know, you're going to make millions and millions of dollars. Okay, you're going to get a nice big plush white house or maybe a large tower or anything like that. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say you're going to have a foundation in your name or anything like that. He doesn't state anything about success at all. It is merely a lesson in morality, a lesson in ethics. So for Churchill to take it that one step further... And to say that by following, more closely following the Sermon on the Mount, the more likely we are to succeed in our endeavors, would for the agnostic and the atheist be taking it that step too far. However, if you consider that this apparent agnostic or atheist actually believed in the power of the Word of God, in the power of the Bible, then maybe his statement makes a lot more sense. Winston Churchill once said, we believe that the most scientific view, the most up-to-date and rationalistic conception will find its fullest satisfaction in taking the Bible story literally. We may be sure that all these things happened just as they are set out according to holy writ. Churchill knew what Christians have, rational Christians have known for years, that science is a gift from God. It has not been put here so that it can fight against religion. It is there so that we can explain things that previously or are currently unable to be explained. God gave us science to be able to see into that. Clearly, by Churchill's own words, he believed in the power of God. He professed his faith in the literal belief of the words in the Bible. Now, modern days, the modern-day politician, you hear it every single election. Modern-day politician rolls out God. You know, God this, God that, the Bible this, the Bible that. And most of them don't believe it. They roll it out because they want to capture your vote. They want to be all things to all men. Okay? So, you know, they'll feign their beliefs. In, in, in a lot of cases, they'll feign their belief so that you will vote for them and you will, you will support them. Winston Churchill had no need for such humdrum. When Winston Churchill spoke, he meant what he said. And the evidence in God and Churchill strongly supports great-grandfather's, great-grandfather's own belief in God and that belief in the divine intervention he spoke of. Now, if you want further evidence of this, we need to take a look at Commander Walter Thompson, who was my great-grandfather's bodyguard throughout the 1940s, throughout the, the, the Second World War and beyond. Commander Walter Thompson was one of these people who fretted around my great-grandfather. He was desperate for Churchill to go underground, just like Hitler, when the bombs were dropping, because he didn't want Churchill to get hit. Churchill argued with Walter Thompson over and over and over again. He said, I have asked these people to risk everything, to risk their lives, to risk their properties, to risk their families, to risk everything. How can I possibly expect them to do that if I myself am not prepared to do the same? That was the argument that he gave Walter Thompson. Now, out of interest, how many of you have been to Britain? Hands up. Okay, a few of you. For the benefit of those of you who haven't been to Britain, I'm about to speak to you about a park called St. James's Park. It's very close to number 10 Downing Street. Churchill liked to go walking very late at night. He would use it to reset his batteries. Now, Churchill worked till 3 o'clock in the morning. He would then go to bed. He would then then wake up at 8 o'clock and he'd have breakfast, read through the newspapers and all the rest of it. Then he he would have lunch. He would then go to bed for an hour. He would then wake up an hour later, and he would then push through till 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, this man was in his mid-60s when he was doing this. How many of you know a 66-year-old who could actually do that for five straight years? Does anyone? I think that's a bit of divine intervention in and of itself. 
So Churchill would use St. James's Park to reset his batteries. On this one occasion, he and Thompson went walking in the park, and suddenly the air raid sirens started going off. And quick as a flash, the two of them ran back around the corner to number 10 Downing Street. As they rounded the corner, a massive explosion was heard. Churchill, quick as a flash, straight back around the corner and stood there absolutely aghast. Walter Thompson finally caught up with him. He too stood there, his mouth literally dropping to the ground. Before them, they could not believe what they saw. There was a massive crater where Churchill had been standing moments before. If my great-grandfather had been but a few seconds later, he would have most definitely been killed. Now, Walter Thompson really hoped that this was going to teach Winston Churchill a lesson. He looked at him hoping this was going to push the old man underground into the bunker. Finally, this man was going to listen. A bomb can kill you. Winston Churchill had other ideas. He looked at him and he put his hand on his shoulder. He said, don't worry. There is someone looking after me besides you. It's not the answer that Thompson was hoping for. But Thompson was confused at this point. And he said, I don't understand, sir. Do you mean Sergeant Davis? Sergeant Davis was Walter Thompson's relief. Churchill smiled. He shook his head. And Walter Thompson says that Churchill pointed his finger heavenward. And he said, I have a mission to perform. And that person intends to see it is performed. From Churchill's own words, he confesses a faith in God, a belief that God has created a purpose for him. Churchill once wrote, I realized with awful force that no exercise of my own feeble wit and strength could save me from my enemies, and that without the assistance of that high power, which interferes in the eternal sequence of causes and effect more often than we are always prone to admit, I could never succeed. So we easily established that Winston Churchill had a very real faith in God and a very real belief in the words and the power of the Bible. So this gave us the springboard to the second part of the evidence to prove that the God that Winston Churchill believed really did intervene in his life and really did protect and direct him. Now, in order to recognize this, one needs to know a fair amount about Winston Churchill's life, or at least you need to know the map. The man was considered a failure from start to finish, or rather from start up until the Second World War. He was considered a treacherous, self-centered, glory-hunting warmonger who nobody wanted anything to do with. He was considered arrogant. Nobody liked him in the 1930s at all. If you were a friend of Winston Churchill's, okay, that was your only friend. Winston Churchill was incredibly unpopular. And he was considered, as I say, considered a failure. But Churchill stood up and refused resolutely to bow the knee. Now, the earliest evidence that we see of Winston Churchill's life being turned around by God, because all the way through, when he was rejected, when he was failed at this, he failed at that and everything, he never gave up. We never understood why, until you look back in the evidence. And the first time that we see God intervening in Winston Churchill's life is when he was but 16 years old in 1891. He was a schoolboy at Harrow School. He was talking to a friend of his, Merlin deGrasse Evans, and the two of them were talking about their futures. And suddenly, great-grandpapa chirped up and said, one day London will be attacked. I shall be in command of the defenses of London, and it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. Winston Churchill predicted three impossible-to-foresee situations. Remember, this, is, this year is 1891. Those of you that know Britain, or at least know your geography, know that in order to attack London, and Churchill was very specific, in order to attack London, you would have to fight through the home counties. So you'd have to, to go on the channel, you'd have to get up at Dover, you'd have to fight through the home counties in order to get to London. Because in 1891, there weren't airplanes. I can assure you that if you did try it, every man jack of them would be there to stop you. And I'm really sorry to tell you this, but this time we won't be wearing red coats. And we have better weapons. Thanks to Churchill, we have tanks. Thanks to Churchill, we also have aircraft. Trust me when I say, we'll use them. You will never get through to London. You will lose 95% of your force before you do it. We would rather die 
than lose our freedom or allow you to get through. The first thing that Churchill said was London will be attacked. Without an aircraft, that's impossible. Now, there was a man, a physicist here in America called Samuel Langley. He was working on the invention of aircraft before the Wright brothers. He had managed to fly his aerodrome aircraft for a quarter of a mile before he had to ditch it. But the American press had no interest whatsoever in reporting about this feat. They thought, so what? It doesn't matter. It is highly unlikely that Winston Churchill would have read some obscure article about Samuel Langley and the potential of the invention of flying. It is highly unlikely that he would ever have heard of this and from that extrapolated the idea that London could one day be attacked because aircraft would be the wave of the future. It wouldn't be until much later on that Churchill had that realization when he met with the Wright brothers. However, as God and Churchill is based solely on fact and not on supposition, I felt, and we can't prove that Churchill didn't read an article on Langley or didn't read some obscure article on, on his aerodrome flight or anything like that. As we can't prove that Churchill didn't, I felt this part of the evidence we had to dismiss. We had to put it to one side and leave it alone because we needed to be able to prove points. So we moved on to the second point. I shall be in command of the defenses of London. There is only one position in Great Britain that gives you that power. And that is the office of Prime Minister. Winston Churchill was talking about one day becoming Prime Minister. Now, I said to you before that if Winston Churchill had been, if Winston Churchill had not been so unpopular, then it's possible he could have become Prime Minister. But the fact of the matter is, Winston Churchill was the most unpopular person in Britain. If you were a friend of Winston Churchill, he was your only friend. What a friend he would have been. For those of you who have Facebook, imagine just having one friend. I challenge you today to ditch all of your friends apart from one. Find out exactly how lonely it is, especially when that one decides to go somewhere else. You know, it is, it's not an enviable position to, to have just one friend. But Winston Churchill would have been an amazing friend to have had at that time. But knowing that Winston Churchill was the most unpopular person in Britain at that time, it's highly unlikely that he would have risen to the position of being prime minister because we wouldn't have called upon him at a time of war, let alone, sorry, at a time of peace, let alone a time of war. Why would we? We didn't want him. He was a warmonger. He was in it for himself. So we thought, okay, fine. The evidence here, he says he should be in command of the defenses of London. He did become prime minister and everything. We'll move on. The third part of the evidence, it will fall to me to save the capital and save the empire. It is the height of arrogance at any age to stand up and to say that it will fall to you to save your country, to save your nation from something. It is the height of arrogance to say it at any age. At 16 years old, it's incredibly arrogant to actually say it. Until the book God and Churchill... There was one word that was not associated with my great-grandfather. Can anyone guess what that one word might be? It begins with an H. Sorry? Humble. Humility. Humility was never associated with Winston Churchill until God and Churchill. Because of that one statement, you think Churchill is arrogant. However, I've been a public speaker since 2005. And in all my time as a public speaker, wherever I've gone, people have said to me, but for your great-grandfather, we would have been Nazis. But for your great-grandfather, we would be Russians. But for your great-grandfather, we would have lost the war. But for Winston Churchill, this. But for Winston Churchill, that. It is the accolade that we, the people, have given Winston Churchill that brings that last part to fruition. We, the people believe that it was down to Winston Churchill to actually win the Second World War. Now, let's look at the evidence. Let's look at what we've got here. Because this, in the, in the, in the religious world, this is where we separate prediction from prophecy. It is widely accepted that a prediction can come from anyone. And it doesn't have to come true in the way that it's been spoken or anything like that. It can move around and eventually it, it 
can come round to becoming true. But in order for something to be a prophecy, a prophecy can only come from God. In order for it to be a prophecy, it has to come true exactly as the prophet has spoken. In this case, Winston Churchill. So let's examine this. London will one day be attacked. London was attacked in the September of sorry in the July of 1940. Winston Churchill was made prime minister in the May of 1940. So Winston Churchill was indeed in charge of the forces of London, the defenses of London at the time when London was attacked. He was specific. London was going to be attacked. He would be in charge of the defenses of London. It was, he was. I forget, did we, did we win the war? I think we did. It fell to Winston Churchill. The accolade that we give him is not because Winston Churchill was such a great man. It's because Winston Churchill was the one and only person in Britain who was in a position to lead, who actually believed in the impossible. How impossible is it for a lame man to walk? How impossible is it for a leper to be healed in the time of Jesus? How impossible is it to believe in that possibility? But if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, everything is possible. Everything is possible. Churchill believed. He believed because he had a faith in God. A faith in God that was so real to him. He was not prepared to look at the odds where we were up against five to one against. He didn't care about the odds. Winston Churchill cared about one thing, doing what God had told him to do. Winston Churchill humbled himself before God. Now, if you want further evidence of God's intervention in this, let's reverse it. Let's analyze what, church, what would have happened had Winston Churchill decided he wanted to be a popular politician. Well, in the 1930s, he would have been part of the Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin coalition government. He would have been quite happy to never mention the Treaty of Versailles or anything like that, to overlook everything that Germany was doing at that time and just ignore things and let things go along. Later on, when Stanley Baldwin became prime minister in 1934, Winston Churchill would have again sat there and said absolutely nothing. When he saw the black and white documents, the actual documents proving that Hitler was rearming, proving that Hitler was hiding it, and showing exactly how he was hiding it, Churchill wouldn't have said a word because he wouldn't have wanted to challenge the prime minister because he wanted to be a popular politician. You know, he, one day he might become prime minister and say he needed to be popular in parliament. And so he wouldn't have mentioned this. In 1938, when Neville Chamberlain, the prime minister at that time, went over to Berlin and came back, you remember he came back with that piece of toilet paper in his hand, waving it, peace in our time, peace in our time. He stood outside number 10 Downing Street, waving it, promising this. Churchill wouldn't have stood up and said anything against it. He would have stood up in Parliament that afternoon. He would have said, Prime Minister, congratulations. You've, done an, you've, you've achieved an amazing feat. Well done. Because he wanted to be a popular politician. On September the 1st, 1939, this popular politician, Winston Churchill, would have woken up with the rest of the world to find that he too had been dubbed by history with those two terrible words, too late. But Winston Churchill wasn't like that. He wasn't interested in popularity. He was interested in service above self, in serving, in doing what Christ had taught in the Sermon on the Mount, in serving the people, which is how politics should be, a service to the people. We are called to serve whether we are politicians or not. We are called to serve. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you are number one. Service above self. Serve others first. 
Winston Churchill stood up in the 1920s and he warned about the Treaty of Versailles. He said, this will cause a further problem and further unrest in Europe. He was shouted down because nobody wanted this to be said. Nobody wanted a continuation of the First World War. When he, when, when he saw that Germany was rearming in the 1930s, he stood up and he warned in 1931, and he was ignored. In 1935, he had in his hand the same piece of paper that Stanley Baldwin, the Prime Minister, had in his hand that proved that Germany was rearming. He stood in Parliament and he said, if we don't do something about this, then next year, in 1936, Germany will have equaled us if not overtaken us. By 1937, Germany had almost doubled against Europe what we had in aircraft and munitions. These bands of Teutonic soldiers that were marching in, Britain, in Germany, these youths looking for weapons, not indeed for, for status or anything, they were looking for weapons. That was an army. They weren't the Boy Scouts. They weren't being prepared to, you know, make a little fire. Let's be a Hiawatha. No. They were being taught how to shoot. They were being taught this. They were being indoctrinated to believe Jews were bad. Communists were bad. People are bad. Hitler is God. The indoctrination of people was incredible. If we'd lost Winston Churchill either before the war or during the Second World War, it would have been fatal for all of us. Now, this is the really interesting part. You think I've just told you the interesting part. In doing the research, I came across evidence from a friend of Adolf Hitler's, his best friend, that Hitler too had a vision at 16 years old. This was in 1905. And his vision that he, that, uh, his friend August Kubizek said, he said, my friend, his eyes feverish with excitement, began to speak with visionary power to the plane of his own ambition. Hitler began to conjure up in grandiose plans, plans for Germany, plans of what he was going to do. One day, he was going to lead Germany out of the mire. This was before the First World War. So Germany was, hadn't even entered the mire. They were quite a well-off nation in Europe, so there really was no problem whatsoever. But Hitler said one day he would do this. Now, the reason that this is a prediction and not a prophecy is because Hitler twisted it. I burst into tears the moment I read this because I suddenly realized if Adolf Hitler had done what Winston Churchill had done and had sought peace, had sought a way to help Germany without going to war, without hurting people, without killing six million Jews, it would have meant 60 million lives would have been saved. All Hitler had to do was do what God wanted. He could have had all the glory, all the accolades that my great-grandfather has today. Every single one of them. But he chose to stand for himself. It's incredible when you think how sad it is that, by, in, that if he had humbled himself, he would have achieved a lot more than doing it on his own. Winston Churchill knew, if I try to do it on my own, I will not succeed. I will achieve a lot more with God. I have achieved so much more with God. At this moment in time, I'm, I'm fighting a rather hard, um, uh, hard health problem. The moment I was diagnosed with this health problem, I thanked God. I did what Paul told me. I praised God in all things. The reason I did is because I had asked God for a very close relationship with him, a relationship where I could walk with God, where I could talk to God, where I could discern that it was God speaking to me, where I knew exactly what God wanted me to do. I wanted to give up my free will. I'm fed up of, of failing in life, and so I wanted God in my life. I praised God for this health problem, and I praised him because it gives me an opportunity to walk with God closer. 
It gives me an opportunity to see God's miracles work. Whether I'm healed or not, I'm getting that close relationship with God. And every single day, God is blessing me more and more with that closeness, with that love, with that support. I'm not worried. I don't care what the future holds because the future is in God's hands. Think how bad it is for the agnostic and the atheist. The agnostic has no idea. Okay, so he's got no one to turn to. The atheist doesn't believe in God, doesn't believe anything at all. So he's got no one to turn to. How could you fight the Second World War without God? If you doubt that God was present during the Second World War, then I challenge you to go and look at Dunkirk. Never before has the English Channel been so calm as to allow a rowboat to go on it. I've traveled the channel back and forth many, many times. And I can tell you that it's a very, very choppy sea. It's very choppy water. There is no way that a boat, a dinghy, could actually make it across the channel safely, let alone make it back. But interestingly enough, the two miracles that occurred at Dunkirk, with 300-odd thousand people standing exposed on the beaches of Dunkirk, Hitler told his troops to stop, not to engage. He could have wiped out the entire British army. Most of the French army as well, if he had only moved forward. But he told his troops to stop. The first miracle was that. The second miracle was the channel. How, I mean, if we hadn't managed to get all of those flotillas, all of those um, dinghies out there, none of those troops would have been saved. Churchill hoped for 30,000. Over 300,000 people were saved from that beachhead. If that's not a miracle, I don't know what is. Because if you can explain it, go ahead. I challenge you to explain the Second World War without God. I challenge you to explain Winston Churchill's life without God. Because if you know about Winston Churchill's life, you know definitely there is no way that his life was possible without God. Because of the disasters he faced, the time where he faced death so many times. But if you want to go ahead and believe that God didn't help him or anything like that, you carry on. But I want you to explain how. How did Churchill survive? How did Churchill make it in his life? How on earth did the most unpopular man in Britain, the man who was supposedly self-centered, arrogant, in it for himself, a warmonger and a glory hunter, how did this man make it to Downing Street? How did he become the most significant man on this planet? If you believe that God did not intervene in Winston Churchill's life, I want you to write and explain that to me. Forget Dunkirk. Explain that to me. If you can explain it to me, I'll walk away. Otherwise, I'm sticking. The evidence in God and Churchill proves that God intervened in Churchill's life. At the beginning, the questions were, was Churchill a man of faith? Yes, the evidence in God and Churchill certainly supports that. And at the end of this, I will very happily um, be, I've got, some, uh, well, I've got a couple of sample books at the back, if you were interested in that. And I, I will be very interested to talk to you further about that evidence. Secondly, did God intervene in Churchill's life? The evidence proves that without God, Churchill could not have survived. So what does this mean for us today? Well, I started off by telling you, it doesn't matter who's in control or who thinks they're in control. You think you have a vote. You think your vote counts. The government is stupid enough to believe that they control your vote, okay? There are people who are stupid enough to believe that they control their vote. How many people have asked themselves the question, does God control the vote? Line up a thousand people. They can all vote as they want. If God doesn't want the person they voted for, their ballot papers won't be valid. Sorry, just doesn't happen. Winston Churchill was nothing special. Winston Churchill was a simple man. He was a man who simply decided to humble himself before God. His legacy is a proof that all of us can lead like Winston Churchill with courage, with faith, and with integrity. 
You can try it on your own. You don't need to have faith in God in order to be a leader. No, 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 no. just makes it a lot easier. You can all, we can all lead like Winston Churchill. He wasn't God. You know, he doesn't stand on this massive, uh, this massive tower looking down on us or anything like that. He doesn't own heaven. We each have that ability in us. And Winston Churchill, I firmly believe, was given to us by God to prove that we can do this. That with God, all things are possible. It has been my pleasure to present the evidence for God and Churchill. I have a few moments in which, do I have a few moments? In which I would love to open the floor to some questions. If you, if you have some questions, or maybe you want to disagree with me, which I'm quite happy for you to do as well. I was told that I would be very brave if I asked you if you had questions, but I am very happy and confident in myself to answer any questions you may have. Anyone? Really? Nobody has a question. Oh, you have a question. Yes, ma'am. Did my great-grandfather know C.S. Lewis? Yes, he did. I mean, he, well, I mean, sorry. He knew of him. He didn't know him personally. So he, he knew of him, but he didn't know him personally. But it's interesting that C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis's life um, was also very tumultuous. Uh, and he walked away from God for a very long time, then came back. Uh, he, was an, he was an incredible man. I actually lived down the road from where he lived. And, uh, you know, I didn't know him either. <laughs> <laughs> Little before my time. I'm only 43. <laughs> yes, sir. You're asking what effect did the failure of Winston Churchill's failure in World War I, you're obviously referring to Gallipoli, have on his influence him with regards to the Second World War and his leadership there. He didn't make the same mistake twice. Um, Gallipoli is fashionably blamed on Churchill completely. But for those people who actually bother to look at the evidence, you could see that Churchill wasn't the only person at fault. Okay, there was, a lot of, of, uh, there was a lot of moving on, and the one person that actually is, is to blame for the Gallipoli incident is really General Kitchener, who became Field Marshal Kitchener. Kitchener had a personal grudge against Winston Churchill, and he used that personal grudge when it came to Churchill asking for the number of troops, the 5,000 troops he needed in order to be able to, um, to attack through the Gallipoli Peninsula. And Kitchener refused to give them to him. He said, we don't have them. Interestingly enough, once Churchill was out of the way and, in, and posted to France, suddenly Kitchener found the troops that were needed. But he still failed to achieve it. But unlike Churchill, Kitchener remained in place. Churchill had the honor to resign. So it influenced him from the point of view of he was more cautious. But Churchill was not afraid to make those tough decisions. And as a leader, you have to make those tough decisions. Can you imagine how hard it is to make the decision between life and death? To decide these, these people are going to die and these people are going to live. Those are the decisions Churchill faced every single day. Every single day. As leaders, sometimes you have to make those decisions. They're not easy. I'm very pleased I haven't had to make that decision yet. And I don't ever, I don't ever want to. Next question. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. 
Thank you very much. Bless you. We, we will talk about that afterwards. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Oh, sorry. I'll come to you in just one moment. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, Churchill didn't like the fact that uh, Roosevelt drank martinis. <laughs> Roosevelt didn't like the fact that Churchill drank whiskey. <laughs> or indeed insisted on champagne. But actually, no, there is, um, there is actually one very significant thing. At one of the conferences, at the Yalta Conference, uh, my great-aunt Mary, she was present um, at that time. She was my great-grandfather's adjutant um, every now and then. And Stalin had gone to bed. And Roosevelt and Churchill sat up and they were talking. And they were talking about what was going to happen to Britain at the end of the Second World War. Because Britain, you know, the empire was going to come apart because India was going to be given her independence. It would have been part of the Lend-Lease Agreement that Roosevelt had put in place. Um, and so Britain was going to be unprotected. And it was decided between the two great men that Britain would become part of the United States, would effectively become your 49th state. No, 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 don't get excited. I know the gentleman in the blue shirt with the beard and moustache, he's getting excited. He's, he's rubbing his hands thinking, 1776, chance for revenge. No. No, 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 no. We would retain our sovereignty. We'd still have the queen and a note for Europe. We'd still have the pound. Okay, we would retain our sovereignty, but it would mean that, in 19, that what happened in 1939, where you were not able to join us in the war because the war did not directly involve you, it would mean that that would never happen again. As a result, we go to war, you go to war. You go to war, we go to war. Well, actually, we go to war, yes, we go to war, you go to war, you go to war, we go to war. Okay, it works both ways. It's a relationship that's unwritten, but it's been respected from every president since Roosevelt, and every prime minister since Winston Churchill. That is how the special relationship really started. And that is why we have this very special relationship. And it's very interesting that um, one of the slides that you had up just before the service um, was talking about what do you want God to do. Was, it, was that right? The, 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 four, the four things and, um, and everything. Most of you wanted God to intervene in something. Like, what was the last one? Um, I can't remember what the last one was, but it's faith. Faith in God. That was something that the two of them shared as well. A faith that they believed that God was in control and that they could win the war. Churchill knew as soon as the Americans joined the war that we would win the war. And at the end of the war, when his private secretary congratulated him on winning the war, he turned to him and said, I couldn't have done it without the Americans. It's true. We cannot do it without you. And you can't do things without us. Don't discount Britain just because we're a small country. Okay? Some size does not matter. As Christians, you know that. David and Goliath. Okay? doesn't matter what size you are. You have a lot of weight. Especially when you have the United States behind you. We need each other. There is a reason why we are cousins. And we need each other. That's why I wear the, the American and British flag. It's to celebrate that special relationship. We do love you guys. And we think you're absolutely amazing. And when you come over to Britain, we love your accents. <laughs> when we come to America, you apparently love our accents. It's, it's brilliant. It's, it's a match made in heaven. Seriously. It's, my, when my wife gets tired, when Sarah gets tired, um, she, um, her southern drawl really comes out. And I said, oh, sweetheart, just, that was very, very southern, the way you said it. She looks at me and says, I'm sorry. I said, sweetheart, why are you apologizing? It's why I fell in love with you. I love hearing the southern drawl. If I can keep you tired 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that would be amazing. At the start of our marriage, she used to say that, um, that waking up next to me was like waking up next to James Bond. And then Daniel Craig decided to become James Bond, and that all ended. <laughs> I don't look anything like Daniel Craig. He's much better looking than I am. <laughs> I can't even pass off as Sean Connery. <laughs> Roger Moore, possibly. But she said it was like waking up next to James Bond. Well, every single day when I wake up, I hear this beautiful sudden drawl. And I absolutely love it. I, I really do love it. It's, it's wonderful. It's very homely and very, um, very warm. So, you know, it's, we, we have a relationship together. We may be divided by the Atlantic Ocean, 
Okay, we may be divided by a language that we don't agree on. It is tomato, by the way. <laughs> just throw that in there just for, the, for, for giggles. Um, but we do need each other. And together we can do the most amazing things. But only if God is in the midst of us. When two or three are gathered, I am there. Any other questions? Oh, yes, gentleman back. Sorry. What was his thought before, the day before D-Day? It's almost over. <laughs> Churchill was excited about D-Day. He was worried about it, but so was Eisenhower. But he was confident that it was in the right hands. It's interesting, the relationship between Churchill and Eisenhower was, a, was not an easy relationship. But when D-Day had been planned, it was a two-year plan, and a two years in the making. And once it had been planned, literally a, a week before, sorry, two weeks before, Churchill went to Eisenhower and said to him, I'm going to be on one of the boats, that, that one of the ships that's, uh, that's there for the landings. And Eisenhower looked at him and said, no, you're not. Eisenhower wasn't a fool. Okay, there was no way that he was going, he was taking responsibility enough for the amount of lives that were there at D-Day. He was not going to take responsibility for Winston Churchill's life. Okay, he was not going to be the man who had to turn around to the king and say, look, I'm really sorry, but your prime minister is at the bottom of the, of, of the channel. So he said, no, you're not. Winston Churchill said, look, we really appreciate you being here. We really appreciate as an American that you are here and that you have, excuse me, that you have masterminded all of this uh, and everything and, and, and helped us so far. However, it is not, you are not allowed as an American to instruct his majesty on whom he may place upon his ships. And he left it at that and walked off, thinking, oh, Eisenhower's now beat. Eisenhower wasn't an idiot. He had a lot of courage. The man, and, and I can tell you, I met his, his granddaughter, Mary, and she, she is just, she's an absolutely amazing person, just like her grandfather. And Eisenhower wasn't, wasn't an idiot. He went directly to the king. You know, he contacted the king. I mean, hey, you, you know, I'd love to, you know, friend up, friend up the queen and say, hi, queenie, how are you doing? You know, he contacted the king. And the king said, I understand exactly where you're coming from. I'll deal with it. Every Tuesday, Churchill and the king would have lunch together. And because it, that was a tradition, and it's still a tradition today. And so the two of them sat, they, and they got to the coffee. And the king said to him, uh, uh, said to him, Winston, I understand that you're wanting to, you're going to be present at D-Day. And he said, yes, your majesty, yes, I, I am. He said, that's wonderful, Winston. I'm going to come with you. <laughs> the king kind of hoped that Churchill was going to turn around to him and say, you can't possibly, it's too dangerous. You know, this country couldn't possibly afford to lose you, etc. And then the king could turn around and say the same to Winston Churchill. But instead, the king turned around and said, great, I'm going to come with you. Churchill took one look at him and said to him, okay, but I need to ask the cabinet first. At this point, King George was furious. He got up, he stormed out of the room. His private secretary was amazed at watching the king storm out of the room, really frustrated and angry because the ruse had not worked. It took a personal letter from the king to my great-grandfather to ask him not to go, because the king said, I've decided that if we go, we're going to be in the way. And reluctantly, Churchill backed down. It was something he regretted for the rest of his life, because Winston Churchill was a true leader. A true leader leads from the front. That's why they're called leaders and not followers. It is leadership, not followership. Churchill led from the front. If you want to be a Churchill leader, if you want to be a true leader, a true leader, then you need to forget your life and worry about everybody else's. Even if you lose your life. If you lose your life for me, Jesus said. If you lose your life for me. Our lives on this earth are insignificant. If you want to be a leader... Give up your life. Give up your life and lead. Care about other people first. 
There are some of the most thankless jobs that you could do. For instance, you could be a nurse. You could be a teacher. These are the most thankless jobs that exist. They are the most underpaid people in the world. You know, without a teacher, you wouldn't have anything. You wouldn't have a Bible. You wouldn't have a place to worship. You wouldn't have a building. You certainly wouldn't have a pastor. Actually, you might have a pastor because, you know, several crackpots have grown up and made up their own religion. Okay, but you wouldn't have a Bible. You wouldn't have anything. Yet teachers are the most, one of the most underpaid professions in the world. I'd like to reverse the coin and the CEO of Exxon Mobil can get, you know, he can get $20 an hour and the teacher can get $200 an hour or $500 an hour. I mean, the, the bonus, you know, I get paid $2 million a year and my bonus, well, this year it was only $10 million. It's a, very, it's a hardship, you know. Next year, maybe it'll be 15. I was used to the 15 million earlier. I remember my father used to get 15 million each year. Such a hardship. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been a real privilege and pleasure to speak to you. I've spoken over my time, but God bless you. God bless this beautiful church and this beautiful congregation, your pastor, his wife, and things. God bless Texas, but particularly, God bless this amazing United States of America. Thank you so much indeed. God bless you.